Thank you for checking out this week's message online. If what you've heard today impacts you in any way, let us know at impact at kingofkingsomaha.org. I first saw this young man when he played on the Creighton Blue Jay basketball team, point guard, awesome. I loved watching him play basketball, but then I got to actually know him beyond just being a basketball player. He's a dear friend. I love you, Josh. I love the whole family, but I'm, bring, I'm bringing up now. Come on, give a nice King of Kings welcome to Josh Dotzler. Good morning, good morning. How you guys doing this morning? Good. Man, it's so good to be here at King of Kings, and it's been fun seeing so many friendly faces all morning, friendly faces in the crowd, people that have known me since I was young and, and are like, man, you've grown up so much. You look so much like your mom. That's a good thing. But it's good to be here knowing so many people. And uh, just over the years, since I have been young, my parents started our, our organization about 30 years ago, we've had the opportunity to partner with King of Kings and specifically uh, Pastor Mark. And over the years when I transitioned, I, I played basketball at Creighton University and I can see Pastor Greg's already got jokes. I feel like I'm at home here. Creighton does not have a football team. But does Nebraska have a basketball team? Oh, man, I love this place. That's why I came in to talk about it's personal. I've got some experiences. And so, so good, but have gotten to know Pastor Mark over the years. And, and, and when I transitioned from playing basketball and, and stepping into to ministry, um, Pastor Mark was one of the first pastors that said, man, I, I would love to get together with you and help develop your three-point shot. <laughs> he didn't say that, but I know he was thinking that. But he was one of the first pastors and leaders, you know, outside of my dad that sat down with myself and another young leader. And we spent time and, and I remember going to Applebee's consistently. We set up a consistent time at Applebee's and, and we ate and he paid for our meal every time. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and over the years, we've developed this friendship and relationship. And I am so grateful for him, his investment in my life, his wife, who we've had dinner with and have gotten to know. And uh, to see what God is doing here at King of Kings and the transition and getting to know Pastor Greg even just a little bit this morning. He welcomed us as we walked in, opened the door for us and, and excited for what God is doing in the future. How many of you are excited about what God is doing in the future? Come on. Also here, uh, on behalf of our church, Bridge Church, our nonprofit, Abide, that I mentioned, my, my parents started about 30 years ago. And uh, with my wife, Jennifer, of 12 years, a week ago yesterday. I think there's even a picture of our family up here. Uh, my, my wife is half Mexican, half Thai. I'm half black, half white. I say our kids are the most beautiful mutts you'll ever see in your life. We've got four of them, Joshua, Joseph, Juliana, and Jada, nine, seven, six, and two. And thankfully, most of them look like my wife. <laughs> also here with my parents, uh, who you're going to get to hear from in a little bit. I'm super excited about them sharing their story. Uh, my parents started a nonprofit. They're also, the other uh, work that they do on the side is they had 14 children. 
And so I'm one of 14. I'm number five. My sister, Kriana, who's here, who also works with us, she is number nine. Most of the time they don't use names. They just use numbers <laughs> to describe us. I think also Tyrese and Tashara, who are a part of our team. Can you guys just wave a little bit? They're helping us uh, distribute information. Yeah, we can give it up for them. They're all right. So thankful that they're here and, and, and so thankful to be here. And, and I'll just say this. I love the series that you guys are on. Do you guys like the series? Man, it's personal. It's per- I feel like this side liked the series and I don't know about this side. Do you guys like the series? Come on. It's so good. And, and, and I love this idea of it's personal because, uh, you know, when you're having a conversation for somebody, with somebody, and you start to talk about things that maybe you're getting a, a little too personal, it's like, hold on, hold on, it's, it's, it's a little personal. I don't want to go there. But you're saying, no, we want to have those conversations. We want to talk about things that maybe people don't want to talk about. And the other side of it is, is we want to have people share from personal experience. How many know that when you have a personal experience, you have a level of conviction when you're sharing or communicating on something? And so all the stories and and sermons and things that have been shared have come out of experiences that individuals have had. And I want you to know that what we're going to talk about today, it's personal. It's personal for me. It's personal for our family. It's personal, I believe, for every single one of us sitting in the room today because of how it affects our city. And our hope and prayer is is that what we share from the Bible and looking at Jesus and what he said and, and, and hearing my parents and their story and what God has done in their hearts and lives, my prayer is is that all of us get a little bit better when it comes to this idea of race. We're gonna talk about race. Look at the person sitting next to you and say, oh, no, he did not. <laughs> I just said what you were thinking. Race. Oh, no. How many know that race is a hot topic in our culture? That the stakes when it comes to racial issues are at an all time high. It seems like every challenge our world is facing seems to center and revolve around this idea of race. And you would think that in 2019, 2019, you would think our world and our culture would be so much farther along. Can I tell you this? This is this is special information for you. I didn't share this at the other services. A study came out. Omaha, Nebraska, one of the most segregated cities in the nation. Can I tell you it's personal? It's personal. I still remember. I think I was getting ready to go into the sixth grade and my parents just got off the phone. And I could tell by uh, just their, their faces and demeanor that the conversation they had wasn't a good one. And I remember my parents sitting uh, myself down and my brothers and sisters and they started to tell us that this school, which was a rural school right outside of Omaha, that our family was trying to get into, had just come to a decision on whether or not our family could go to this school. And this school, when they heard that a, an African-American family, a black family was trying to go to school here at their school, they threw a, a school meeting. And the parents came and teachers came and faculty came and they got together and they had conversation and they came to a decision and they called to tell my parents that we could not go to their school because we were black. Now, this wasn't too long ago and my mom will share more of her experiences but that experience was one of those experiences that 
marked my life and gave me a picture of the reality of the world we live in and the reality of some of the challenges that I would even continue to face as I would continue to, to grow and be a part of society. And so I recognize that this race conversation, man, it is a hard conversation. It is a real conversation and it is relevant to us, every single one of us today. The stakes are high. But as the church, as followers of Jesus, we get to be the ones that are a part of the solution. While the world is looking to politics and to business and to all these systems, can I tell you that it is the church, the people of God, that is the solution to our world's greatest challenges. I love it. And that's why I love that we're, we're talking about these different things that can be so challenging because we're saying, no, 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 no. We don't want to avoid them. We're willing to get a little uncomfortable so that we can be a part of the solution. Jesus, in Luke chapter 10, starts to uh, give us this picture of how important it is for us to engage in conversations like race. I'm going to go through this story and, and, and share a few points that my parents are going to come up and they're going to share their personal story and how it connects with what we're going to read. In Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, it says, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. He said, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Somebody say eternal. 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 I didn't even ask you to repeat that one, but that was good. <laughs> he says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now, this religious leader, this individual who was asking Jesus this question was somebody who, who understand the laws, who understand the Jewish commandments. There was over 600 commandments that they were required to live by. And he was trying to trap Jesus. He was trying to stump him. And so he, he, he wanted Jesus to answer this big question. And so he asked Jesus this question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? How many people have ever heard this story before or read the scripture? Many of us know the, the ending and, and know what happens. I think it's so important for us to understand that everything that happens afterwards, what Jesus shares, I think it's one of the most powerful race conversations that Jesus has, but it all hinges on this question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? This race conversation, this idea of race relations, can I tell you that it has eternal implications? It's not just an earthly conversation. It's not just something good that we should talk about because our world is dealing with it. It's so much deeper and so much bigger. People of God, we have to understand that race relations has eternal implications. Can we say that together? Race relations have eternal implications. One more time. Race relations have eternal implications. I want us to all get that. Man, when we walk away today, race relations have e eternal implications. It, it, it affects me eternally and it affects the people that God has called me to. Yeah. And so this religious leader asked Jesus this question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, as all great leaders do, asked the question back. What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? says, the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
How many people have heard that before? Jesus said, right, do this and you will live. But it says the man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus another question. The religious leader says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus asks him the question back and, and the guy gives the right answer. And so what we see is a guy asks the question that he already had the answer for, but he's trying to trap Jesus. Jesus, he says, love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And something that they would have understood back then to love your neighbor as you love yourself. They understood that yourself wasn't just you personally as an individual. But yourself was actually anybody who looked like you, talked like you, sounded like you, lived in the same neighborhood as you. Yourself uh, was those people that you were in relationship with. Your neighbor was anybody who was different than you. Somebody say different. different. It was the other. It was those people that you wouldn't otherwise associate with. And so this, this, this religious leader, this lawyer who asked Jesus this question, who, who knew the right answer, knew exactly what he was called to live by. And the scripture said that he wanted to justify his actions. How many know that it's one thing to know something, it's another thing to do the right thing? It's one thing to have knowledge, it's another thing to have belief that leads us to the right action. And so we see in this leader that, man, he knew the right answer. He gave the right answer, but he wasn't willing to do the right thing. I believe that as we read this story, Jesus is saying, man, I want, I want to shift your paradigm. I want to shift your perspective on what you believe your neighbor is. Your neighbor isn't just those that are close to you. The neighbor is those who are different than you. And to really display the type of love that I'm talking about. You've got to go to those places that you otherwise wouldn't go. Jesus goes on to tell a story, which this is what I love about Jesus, is he gives us such a clear picture of what it looks like. We see the story of the Good Samaritan. And as he, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, he said a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. Somebody said, that's messed up. That was good. It's that's messed up with a D though, not that's messed up. That's messed up. This guy, he's traveling along and he gets beat up and he gets left for dead and, and he's lying there dead. And Jesus goes on to tell the story and he makes it very clear that this is a Jewish man. It says, by chance, a priest came along. Somebody say, yeah. I mean, come on, the priest knows the law, knows the scripture, knows everything. Surely he's going to come to this man's rescue. It says, by chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Somebody said, that's messed up. That's messed up. Come on, priest. Come on, Pastor. Okay, the priest didn't do it. Surely the temple assistant's going to do it. And so the verse goes on to say, a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Somebody said, that's messed up. You got to say it like you mean it, that's messed up. I don't even know what that was, but that was messed up. 
It says, then a despised, despised, despised. This is so key and so important because a despised Samaritan, Jews, Samaritans, they didn't get along. It was like rival gangs that would be feuding with one another. It's like Creighton fans and Nebraska fans (laughs) loving each other. There was this picture of people from very different backgrounds, very different belief systems. It's like the racial challenges our world faces with blacks and whites. There was huge tension. And Jesus is trying to paint a picture of what it means to truly love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so the two people who knew the most did the least. The two people who were most like them didn't do anything. It was the Samaritan that walks by. It says he came along. It says, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. And that passion caused something on the inside of him to see this person who was hurting and broken and not see him with the eyes of the Samaritan, but see this person with the eyes of Jesus. As Jesus shifts our our paradigm and gives us his perspective and and really helps us understand who our neighbor is, he wants us to shift our posture and move from a place of pride, move from a place of knowing to a place of compassion. Where compassion literally says our heart goes out to other people. Fills us with a sense of emotion where we step back and we say, man, I've got to be a part of the solution. My parents are going to come up and share their story. And it's so relevant because it's a picture of what God has done in their hearts and now how he's been using them to be a part of the solution. Can we make some noise for my parents, everybody? Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you. I don't know how many know this, but uh, 30 years ago this year, I worked as a chemical engineer here, and God uh, obviously called us to sell all, and we thought be missionaries overseas. We landed in North Omaha. That was 30 years ago this year, so love this place. I still can smell the smell. It's still here. (laughs) But uh, I grew up in a little town in rural Iowa, Defiance, population 300. Any Iowegians in the house? Come on, yeah. I love it. There's always volume with Iowegians. Come on. And uh, everybody I grew up with looked like me, and uh, many of them I was related to, and that was just the environment I grew up in. I had no diversity whatsoever growing up. And I, Ron and I come from extreme opposite backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And um, I grew up in a big city in the Washington, D.C. area, population 5 million and more. And I grew up in an all-African-American community. And where I grew up, I was taught that you had to watch out for Charlie. Does anybody know who Charlie is? Charlie, for us, was white people because you couldn't trust them. And my parents had reasons why they would tell us that, because of the experiences they had. For example, my mom, she worked at a um, white religious school, elementary school. And she had a lot of white friends and they were kind and polite to her. But when she went to inquire about her kids attending school there, they said no, because you're black. And that hurt my mom so much 
that this happened in the 60s. My mom will be 90 next year. She never stepped foot in the church again until the last eight years of her life here. And so, um, so what you find is things like that can really make a difference in um, you know, where you end up. And so anyway, I remember as a kid seeing signs over the water fountain that said white only and black only. When I was in seventh grade, I was a part of the busing that took place where they wanted to enter, um, integrate the, the students, the kids. And I can remember the first day of school, we did not want to go to this all white school. And we knew that they didn't want to have us there. We stayed on our side of the hallway walking, and those kids stayed on their, hall, on their side of the hallway. And there was just a lot, a lot of tension. I remember several years later, I had a girlfriend ask me a question, and she said, would you ever date or marry a white guy? And that was so foreign to me that that could even happen. And I thought and I thought and I said, no way. We would have absolutely nothing in common. And here we are. <laughs> 14 children later. In fact, uh, this next week, we'll actually be celebrating 39 years of marriage. Yep. So imagine I come from rural Iowa, my wife from the Washington, D.C. area, and we go to college in Missouri. My wife saw me, fell madly in love. His version of the story, right? And uh, so I called up her parents to ask for her hand in marriage. And her mother answered the phone, and she's a strong personality. And I said, I'd like to marry your daughter. And her answer was pretty quick and brief, no. How many men have ever experienced that? Wow. I didn't know what to think. And I said, uh, well, why not? And four simple words came out of her mouth. Because you are white. That's the first time in my entire life that anybody ever called me white. Well, having a passion for this young lady, two months later, we drove out over spring break to meet my soon-to-be in-laws, and they began to explain to me what it meant to be black in white America. Again, I was totally confounded by what they were saying. Black? White? I mean, we're all Americans, aren't we? And they began to go through these stories, these litany of stories. Ron, have you ever sat at the back of the bus? Ron, have you ever been denied a job because of the color of your skin? Ron, have you ever not been able to eat at a restaurant because of the color of your skin? And I mean, it just went on and on. But it was so foreign to me. I had never heard this black, white kind of language before. I wasn't familiar at all with any population that had received any kind of negativity because of the color of their skin. So to be honest with you, I left those four or five days with them thinking to myself, they are so prejudiced. They are just a bunch of complainers. I couldn't filter what they were saying. Well, we finally did get married. You wonder that we even did get married. <laughs> we got married. And over the next couple years, my wife would use the black-white language all the time. And I would look at her and say, you are so prejudiced. I knew I wasn't prejudiced. How many know you're not prejudiced? Just raise your hand right here. <laughs> I knew I wasn't prejudiced. And I would say to her, you are so prejudiced by bringing up this topic. We'd walk into a store, 
And she says, see, they're watching me. I said, who's watching you? The people behind the counter, they're watching me because I'm black. That's what they do to black people when you walk into a store. I'd say, what? Honey, you are so prejudiced. Then she'd fire right back at me, you're prejudiced. And so we had a lot of these kind of encounters where we'd, we'd have these conversations where she'd bring something up. She had a sensitivity and an awareness about something that was totally clueless to me, but I thought she was so prejudiced and she'd fire right back. And I thought to myself, you know what? If she never catches me being prejudiced, she can't blame all of this racial stuff that goes on in society. Because she would, she would bring this up and say, you know, white people do this. And I'd like, geez, honey, I'm white. Come on. But if she couldn't catch me being prejudiced, then she couldn't hold me to any of that, right? And so over the course of the first several years, I would just prove to her that I wasn't prejudiced. I remember walking into the Orpheum Theater. In the Orpheum Theater, there are thousands of people that show up to one of those plays, right? And I mean, we sit down, and there are several thousand people there, and we no sooner sit down, and my wife taps me on his shoulder and says, honey, honey, I said, yeah, what? She goes, do you know there's only five black people in the whole place? And I look at her and I'm like, honey, what are you, the black monitor or something? <laughs> she had a sensitivity and an awareness of something that I did not. So imagine we finally have our first child, little Keisha. She's sitting in the middle of the car seat in between us. And I'm talking about this little girl and saying, oh man, what a beautiful little girl. She's going to grow up to be a godly woman. She'll probably be a missionary somewhere. She'll marry some white guy? Not my daughter. She is not marrying a white person. I said, you got to be kidding me. I said, no way. It's not going to happen. Who's she going to marry? Black guy. She's going to marry a black guy. I said, no way. So we had this conversation, and it led into... We're Christians, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> we had this conversation, and it led into more conversation about what prejudice looked like. And so I, I brought this example up to my wonderful husband, who's an engineer. And I said, honey, you're who's an engineer. not prejudiced. Yeah. <laughs> honey, you're an engineer. And um, say you had to hire somebody. And there's a white guy and a black guy going after the same job. And they both have the same credentials. They, you know, they're both awesome. And who would you hire? And immediately he said, I'd hire the white guy. And I turned to him and I said, well, I would hire the black guy. And he turned to me, he says, how could you do that? Why would you do that? He could not understand why I would hire the black guy. And I told him, I said, look, honey, I said, I am familiar with the black culture. I'm connected to that culture, and I prefer that culture. And so it's my comfort zone. And I would hire the black guy. And the same with you. You are connected with white people. You have a comfort zone with them, and that's why you choose to pick the white uh, culture. And for an, a minority, that makes it difficult when you're living in a major, man, uh, majority white culture. Yeah. You have this cap where you can't go, and that's where all of the anger and the hurt and the bitterness comes and the rage comes. And so as a minority, we have to face those challenges almost every day. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, and so for me, as a Christ follower who God has changed and is continually changing, and who has used my husband to help me um, have a different perspective of white people and to create a different posture. And so 
when we were invited to white churches to share our story and to share about our ministry, I would have my kids come and tell me that the kids there called me nigger. So I would have to forgive them and love them. My husband and I are out having dinner with some friends and a white, person, a white man stands up and say, hey you, hey you nigger, get out of here. I have to forgive and love him. When our kids, we were expecting to go to the white small school and they tell me, we don't want your kids in our school. I have to love and forgive them. And this idea of God changing our perspective and then changing our posture is so powerful. And, and it, it's, it's part of the solution I feel that our country has to, it's part of the, the solution for our situation in our country. And it's not only that, but it's also um, part of the, uh, uh, it's also the reality of eternity um, for that person that I'm forgiving and loving and for me. Right, yeah. When you hear race relations have eternal implications, number one, our own hearts, right? I mean, I was shocked when I heard the words come my mouth that she'd marry a white guy. Which, by the way, she didn't marry a white guy. She didn't marry a black guy. She married a Samoan. God has a way of working, doesn't he? But for you and I, what my wife and I realize is our preferences can oftentimes produce prejudices. I grew up in the white zone. My wife grew up in the black zone. But you and I, as Christ followers, we are called to the God zone. There's actually a third narrative. You oftentimes hear, you know, we don't want to take sides. Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. Come take over, right? The same is true for you and I. If we're not careful, we take sides. We let our preferences kind of lead us into some things. And what was so powerful about what God did, that was a defining moment for me. I realized, oh my goodness, I really am prejudiced. That sin and brokenness has affected all of us. But God's love, if we'll step into it, step out of our comfort zones, if we really love our neighbor and get out of our comfort zone, out of the familiar, and start to engage people, guess what? God will change us. See, it has not only eternal implications for our own hearts, but think about the thousands upon thousands of people that are trying to find Jesus, and they can't see him. The Bible says they will know you are Christians by your love one to another. If you and I can start relating across diversity and engaging people that are different than us, what would the world say? When there's racial tension in society and you and I are stepping in and saying, please forgive me. Oh, let me, let me hear your story. And we start to play a role of making a difference. The world says, wow. That looks like Jesus. Race relations has eternal implications. It's a pretty powerful story. And to hear what God has done in their lives over the years, I, I, for me, I can't stress enough my dad, as a white guy, if you didn't notice, 
It's married to an African-American. They're both followers of Jesus. But it wasn't really until my parents being in marriage, but also until they moved to North Omaha, where my dad went from being a part of the majority culture, being a chemical engineer out here, to now being a minority in a predominantly African-American community. How many people have ever been on a missions trip before? Three people. All right, that's, that's a bad analogy. No, I'm just kidding. You go to a mission trip, you go to Mexico, you go somewhere else, and you stand out like a sore thumb. Everybody's looking at you. You're trying to talk, you're trying to buy something, you're trying to interact, and you, 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 I mean, all eyes are on you. The same is true in our community, in our country, when you are a minority. And so my dad started to have experiences as he's driving down the street, leaning back. I will say this, he's white on the outside, but he's got some brother on the inside. <laughs> he's from rural town. He's driving. Guess what? He starts waving at people. <laughs> you do that in Iowa. You don't do that in North Omaha. <laughs> he's waving at people and they're ducking. <laughs> he literally, he's starting a trend. People actually are waving a little more in North Omaha. But he goes to these pastor's meetings. And guess what? He's the only white guy surrounded by all African-American pastors. And their message to him is, oh, just another white guy coming here. How long is he going to last? And as he engaged in relationships, as he engaged in conversations, God started to change him. And he says oftentimes that if he ever thought he was going to be the solution to North Omaha, he was wrong. If he thought he was going to change North Omaha, he was wrong. North Omaha has changed him more than he'll ever change North Omaha. And that's what happens when we put ourselves in situations where we become the minority. Man, it's uncomfortable. I've had a similar experience. I grew up in North Omaha. I was two when our family moved to North Omaha. I'm half black, half white. I don't fit in with the black crowd. I don't fit with the white crowd. Living and growing up in North Omaha, I tell you what, we experienced so much crime and violence. Our stuff was stolen. Our house was shot at. You name it, we experienced it. Caused me to live with fear. Caused me to want to leave. I told God two things I don't want to do. Become a pastor and live in North Omaha. <laughs> don't tell God what you don't want to do. <laughs> so I grew up, went to play basketball. Even when I played basketball. Can I tell you, there was always some troubled kids on the team. And can I tell you what color those troubled kids most consistently were? Black. The African-Americans on our team. I grew up having a certain prejudice even towards black people. And when God called my wife and I to move back to North Omaha, I was not happy about it. I didn't want to be there. So much crime and violence and pain and, man, that culture, they're so angry, intense. And then God started to open up our, our eyes and our hearts. And we started to see these young children who from a young age were learning to survive on their own. And learning to, 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 to get by and, and kids, two, three years old, we'd be at our church and they would come up to my wife and I and say, hey, is that your baby's mama? Is that your baby's daddy? We'd say, no, that's my wife. They had no concept of what a family looked like, of what a marriage looked like. Six kids, all different dads. 
the race realities. Yesterday, my wife and I were driving through the neighborhood and we see four police cars at a house and the police were there and families out and kids are out. And, and, and it was such a picture. We were talking about how when, when those types of environments happen, police show up at a house in North Omaha, man, it gets pretty intense. And at a young age, pa- kids are watching their parents and how they treat the police officers. And so they, they grew up with a perspective. Police are bad. And so the generational cycles and realities of racial tension in my own heart, God had to change me and is constantly changing me and filling me with compassion and giving me a new paradigm. And God's calling me and us to be a part of the solution as the story unfolds with Jesus and this this influential person, this lawyer, And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. After the Good Samaritan was filled with compassion, he starts to take action. And he uses his resources and his money. And he he takes this guy who's beaten and broken and bloodied and takes him to an end. And he pays for all the help that he needs. See, when God shifts our paradigm, when he fills us with compassion, then we can start to take action and be a part of the solution. Every single one of us. I love in Andy Stanley's book called Irresistible. He said, Jesus was the most irresistible person to ever live. Because those that didn't believe what Jesus believed, those that didn't act like Jesus acted, those that didn't look like Jesus, all love to be around Jesus. What if that was said about us? What if as a church, we were known for people who got outside of ourselves, got outside of our church, got outside of our community and said, you know what? Just on the other part of my city, I can actually become the minority so I can be a part of the solution. So I can learn, so I can see, so God can fill me with compassion. The good Samaritan, when he saw this individual, he was close enough to allow his proximity to fill him with compassion. The closer we get, the more we can understand and the more God wants to use it to break our hearts. I believe that as Christians, we are the solution to our world's greatest challenges. Anybody agree with me on that? Come on. And my challenge is that we would pray and ask God to give us more of his heart, more of his perspective, that we would even take steps and say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go across town. I'm going to engage in a relationship. I'm going to get next to people who are different than me so God can start breaking my heart because I want to be a part of the solution in our city. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Lord, thank you that, Lord, it's more personal to you than it could ever be to us. God, you love the other more than we could ever love the other. And God, our our prayer and heart is that you would shift our perspective. God, you'd give us more of your perspective. God, give us eyes to see the way you see. God, would you give us a posture of humility, a posture of compassion that allows our heart to go out towards people who are so different than us. God, because we want to be a part of the solution. We want to practice what we believe. God, we love you. We thank you that regardless of our background, regardless of where we're from, you want to use us to advance your kingdom in very practical, tangible ways.
We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. If you believe at King of Kings Church, let me hear you say, that's what's up. That's what's up. That's what's up. That's what I'm talking about. I'm asking, asking all the Abide Bridge brothers, sisters, um, I can't help but say what I've said in wrapping up now for the third time, that if anybody was more different than somebody else, it's holy, perfect, righteous, and then sinful, broken people like us. And God did, what did he do? He had compassion on us that moved him to action, which was his life and death and resurrection on our behalf, so that when we would fail to love God with heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love our neighbor as ourselves, his grace has covered all of that that we might inherit eternal life because of what he did for us, and then that we can live like him, to be like him as he was for us. And so you guys, uh, I want to I do a blob prayer, please. This is impromptu, so come up here, guys, kind of get around this table, and I'm just going to invite all of our, anybody who wants to come up right now, so the whole church can come if you want, but certainly staff, pastors, uh, pastors' wives, uh, intercessors, elders, board members, for sure, other people that uh, would come up and get around here. Uh, please come. Let's get around. Let's pray. Uh, while they're coming, uh, let me tell you that Ron wrote his first book called Out of the Seats and Into the Streets. Do we still have, do we still have books here? Okay, so we still have some, uh, but this is a fantastic book that tells, like, more of the story, it's, it's super good. Like, I read this book when I got it years ago, like in two hours. It, it reads, it's fantastic. You're really a, a good author, too. Ghostwriter. <laughs> 20. <laughs> but anyway, uh, and these books are, um, uh, we're asking for a $15 donation. If you can't afford that, take one. If you can afford that and more, add a zero to it and give $150 or whatever because all the money and the proceeds are going to help the ministry at Abide and, and Bridge. So, all right. So, anyway, let's just lay hands on right now and just pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we give you thanks and praise for what you're doing. And, God, maybe the thing that you might be doing the most in us today is the work of conviction and helping us to see how, how many times we have not gone to the places to walk in the shoes of other people that are not like us. And because we had preferences, we've had prejudice. And God, we, I pray that you would rid us of that and break our hearts for what breaks yours. And what, Lord, would you please just pour out on our brothers and sisters here on the whole Dotzler family, all abide, all bridge, uh, on the connection that King of Kings has with these ministries and the other churches in our city and our within reach movement. Lord, would you just uh, put protection around us, keep this, these families safe. Thank you, God, for these beautiful children, 14 kids, eight, is it 18 grandkids? 18 grandchildren and counting 
And Lord, for this amazing legacy, for their sacrifice, for their tenacity, for their perseverance. Lord, when, when most people would have said, this is too hard, uh, they just said, no, this is too important. So thank you, Lord. Uh, and we are, uh, we are better together. And we thank you for what you're doing in our lives and in our churches and in our partnerships. And all this we pray in the powerful, strong name of Jesus. And all God's people agreed and said... Amen. Or they said, that's what's up. That's what's up. That's what they said. That's what they said. They. Not they. Not they. They. That's what they said. God bless you, man. All right. So, hey, everybody. It's just, if you'd stand up, let me bless you to go. Let me also say that we have prayer intercessors that will be up here at the front that would love to pray for you with whatever's going on in your life. If you brought something in today and you'd like to pray about that, uh, folks will be up here to do that. But now receive the blessing of Almighty God, the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the boundless love of God the Father for you, and the power and peace of his Holy Spirit be with you. In Jesus we pray it. Amen. All right, have a great week, guys. See you next Sunday. It's going to be awesome.